Good morning. Let's see how observant you are. Uh, did you notice that uh, Jonathan, Brian, and Shelley were all using a handheld mic? Did you pick up on that? A little different. Uh, did you notice that only Chris and Shelley were up here this morning? You noticed that? Uh, no other members of our, of our worship team? Uh, have you picked up on the cone? Uh, it is July 1st, Canada Day, so let's call it a pylon. Have you picked up on the pylon in the parking lot? Um, we were struck by lightning. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, last weekend, hit by lightning, and it's, uh, well, it's, the effects, we're living with the effects. And so I think the air conditioning was out in the fellowship hall this week, the mixer is out in the back and being repaired. A couple of the computers are down, phones down. Rick's hair is standing straight up. <laughs> and um, who knows what else we'll discover in the next, uh, the next week or two or month or two. But many thanks to Rick and Chris who have been running around this past week trying to put things back in order and get things working again. And all the glitches out. But bear with us as that will be a work in progress. Uh, Ernest Shackleton, you've heard of him, a British explorer, early 1900s. He um, made it to the South Pole. His, uh, his real interest was Antarctica, and I believe in the early 1900s, he made three journeys, trips to Antarctica. Um, his first trip, his goal was to reach the South Pole. No one had at that point. And he embarked on his expedition to discover that uh, someone else had just beat him there. Norwegian. Can't remember his name. Slips my memory. Second trip to Antarctica, he decided he wanted to traverse the continent. Uh, starting on this point, cross the South Pole and exit on the far side of the continent. And his ship was called Endeavour, and they became trapped in the ice. And if memory serves me correctly, they spent 450 days stranded on the ice floats and the icebergs around Antarctica. And then his third journey, he decided he wanted to circumnavigate all of Antarctica. And so get right around the whole continent. And I don't think he ever succeeded. He tried again, or at least he set out to try again on his fourth trip south and uh, died before he could depart on that expedition. We look at the likes of an Ernest Shackleton. We look at those expeditions. We consider those adventures. And what do we see? Uh, we observe tremendous service. Uh, here's a man who served the Royal Geographical Society served his country, served humanity in seeking to go where no man had gone before, map it out for generations to come, tremendous service. We see tremendous sacrifice, leaving country behind, leaving friends behind, leaving family behind, enduring unbelievable physical turmoil. Uh, during those months of, uh, of odyssey, if you like, 
down there in the cold extremities of Antarctica. But the one thing we do not see, and this might confuse you at first, the one thing we do not see is self-denial. That is a misunderstood expression in our day. We often equate self-denial with service or with sacrifice. But in a biblical sense, self-denial is actually more than that. Self-denial is the following. It is that simple prayer. Not my will be done, but yours, O Lord. That was not what drove Ernest Shackleton. He was driven in his service and in his sacrifice by his own desire for adventure, his own longing for discovery, his own sense of satisfaction, his own longing for glory. But self-denial never entered into it because the true essence of self-denial in the biblical sense of the expression, is me as an individual, you as an individual, simply stating before God, not my will be done. Your will be done. That might lead to service. That might very well result in sacrifice. But self-denial is far more basic, far more fundamental. It is me coming to the realization that I do not belong to me. I am not Lord of my life. I am not king of my life. That position belongs to someone else. And I joyfully surrender all rights to my life. Joyfully. Surrender it all. And again, my simple prayer is not my will be done, but yours, O Lord. It is the fruit of coming face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we have for the past three months, more or less, focused in this brief study in Luke's gospel account, we have come face to face with Christ. We came face to face with him in the fourth chapter where he returns home to the city of Nazareth. He enters into the synagogue as was his custom on the Sabbath day. He picks up the scroll belonging to the prophet Isaiah penned by Isaiah. He reads from it and he acknowledges that he is the Lord's anointed. He is the promised Messiah. He is the promised Christ, the Redeemer. He reads from Isaiah's prophecy, thereby confirming that he has come, the Lord Jesus has come, to set at liberty the oppressed. How? Through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And by reading from the prophet Isaiah, he confirms that he has come to preach. He has a message to declare. It is good news to the poor. It is indeed liberty to the captives, and it is recovery of sight to the blind. Those who are dead in their trespasses and sins, those who are imprisoned to their sin, 
The Lord Jesus has an unbelievable message, and it is this. This right now is the year of the Lord's favor. This is the time of forgiveness. This is the day of salvation. In effect, the Lord Jesus is saying this, that all who come to the Father through me, all who look to me, all who look away from themselves and look to me as the author of salvation and understand and take to heart exactly what I accomplished through my crucifixion and my resurrection, I promise them forgiveness. I promise them peace with God. I promise them eternal life. Much of Luke's gospel then is taken up with our response. How do you respond to that, friend? What do you make of it? There you are. You've just come face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ, his person and his work. How are you going to respond? For Luke, the answer is threefold. A few Sundays ago, number one, faith. We believe. We receive the Lord Jesus. A little later, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. And those of us who are Christians, we're going to take that bread. We're going to eat it. We are going to receive it. We're going to take that cup and we're going to drink it. We're going to appropriate it. And what we have here in very symbolic fashion is what? The proclamation of the gospel. The Lord Jesus is being offered to us. And we are to what? We are to believe in him. We are to receive him. We are to make him our own. And when we believe in him, we become one with him. And because we are one with him, all of the blessings that he purchased upon Calvary's cross, all of those blessings become ours. That's the first response. It is to believe. And we saw a second response last week that having believed, we then set out on a journey. We're heading toward eternal life. We're heading toward our home, a glorified state. And that journey will be marked by repentance, a life, an entire life, when daily we are turning away from our sin and turning to God. And it will be marked secondly, and this is the third part of the response, by what? self Denial, a denial of self, whereby daily I pray, not my will be done, O Lord, but yours. We hear lots of invitations today in churches. Invitations to ask Jesus into our heart. Invitations to raise our hands if we love Jesus. Invitations, perhaps, to come to the front and accept Jesus. We hear invitations to look to Jesus for security. Look to Jesus for prosperity. Look to Jesus for better health. Look to Jesus for fewer problems. Very rarely, however, do we hear the invitation, deny yourself. And come to Jesus. Very rare indeed it is to hear that invitation. To hear that command. To understand that the Lord Jesus this day beckons you. Commands you to deny yourself. Deny yourself. This is what we're going to wrestle with this morning. 
And there are going to be nine steps along the way. Eight of them mentioned in your sermon notes. You're going to have to squeeze in a ninth. Nine steps. Nine steps as to what it means to deny self for the sake of Christ. We're going to begin in Luke chapter 9. Here's the first point, the first step. Self-denial begins when we magnify God's grace to such a degree that we become nothing. Did you get it? This is the starting point. Self-denial begins when we magnify God's grace, God's mercy, God's compassion, God's loving kindness, God's steadfast love to such a degree, a magnitude, that we become nothing. Look in Luke chapter 9 at verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he, Jesus, said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. I'm not going to unpack the minute details in this text. You can pick up a commentary and do that on your own. I am chiefly concerned with its central message. What is the central message? Luke is driving it home through these three incidents, these three individuals, these three men all come to the Lord Jesus. There is a degree of interest. There is a measure of interest in the Lord Jesus. There is at least the verbal expression desire to follow the Lord Jesus. And in each and every case, what does the Lord Jesus make clear? You can't follow me because you are loyal to something other than me. That is his message. Do you understand the cost of discipleship? Do you understand what it means to walk on that way to eternal life? Do you really get what it means to become my disciple, to follow me? It means this. Your First, loyalty will at all times be me. It begs an obvious question. Do we, even those of us who profess faith in Jesus Christ, do we love something more than Jesus? You know, as we take stock and we ask that simple question, wrestle with that very straightforward question, what do you think what do I think will make me happy? What answer do I come up with? What do I identify in my existence, my daily life as the key to happiness? And is it the Lord Jesus? What shapes my dreams? What shapes my ambitions? 
Is it a relationship? That relationship at all costs. Is it the home? The dream home? The dream job? The dream career? Is it that hobby? Is it that recreation? What is it in life that makes me tick? What is it in life, you know, as those who know me best, if I were to dare to ask them, hey, what is it you think I'm really living for? Number one, in all honesty, is the answer to that question, Jesus Christ. Christ is making it clear in this text that if there is any rival, any rival to him, If there is anything in our lives to which we give our first loyalty, we cannot follow him. We are not following him. It is only the mercy of God. It is only the grace of God that crushes us to such a degree that we then value Jesus Christ above all things. It's why I stated, I worded this point very carefully. Self-denial begins when we magnify God's grace to such a degree that we, our desires, our dreams, our ambitions, my will becomes nothing. God's grace becomes everything. That's the starting point. Here's the second step. Self-denial means we renounce all that we have. Look at the 14th chapter. Luke chapter 14, verse 25. Self-denial means that we renounce all that we have. Luke 14, verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross And come after me. Cannot be my disciple. For which of you. Desiring to build a tower. Does not first sit down. And count the cost. Whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise when he has laid a foundation. And is not able to finish. All who see it begin to mock him. Saying this man began to build. And was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter. Another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, verse 33, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my Disciple. Again, we don't have time to get into the nitty gritty. And in actual fact, we don't have to. If we were, it might actually detract from Christ's main point. His main point is obvious. I've stated it for you. Self-denial means 
we renounce all that we have. He gives one startling example of it, of what he means in verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. It is a comparative hatred. You realize that, right? It is a comparative hatred. He does not literally mean you must despise your family members. You must despise your life. You must hate them in comparison to what? Your love for me. Oh, you love them. He's not denying that. And we love our own lives. We do that by human nature. And certainly we love our spouses and our children and our moms and dads and kids. That's wonderful. And the Bible certainly sanctions, endorses, and celebrates that. The Lord Jesus isn't denying it. His point is this. It's comparative. In comparison to your love for me, it ought to seem like hatred. Because I am your first loyalty. I am your greatest love. And so to follow the Lord Jesus, to deny self, is to esteem all things as dung in comparison to Jesus. It is to be ready to forsake wealth, family, friends, honors, liberty, and life itself for his sake. It is to pray. Here it is. Simple terms. Lord, I give up all claims to my life. I have none. I give up. I surrender all claims to my life. My time belongs to you. My money belongs to you. My family belongs to you. My job belongs to you. Everything belongs to you. You young ones, you teenagers, listen to this carefully. This is a free piece of advice right here. Young ones, you ready? Learn to say this prayer now while you still have nothing. (laughs) That's a freebie, but it's a goodie. Learn this prayer now while you have nothing. And it will serve you so well when you have something. If you're already in the mindset And you've learned it now, what it means to not be our own, but to belong to another and surrender it all to him and to live for him. Learn it now so that when things start coming your way, a wife comes your way or a husband comes your way, kids come your way, a home comes your way, career, job, money, finances, recreation, holidays, it all comes your way. You've already determined how you are going to approach those things. You've already determined how you're going to embrace those things. You've already got it very clear in your mind. I receive these things as gifts from above, but they are gifts. They do not belong to me and I surrender it all to God. And the only thing that matters as I receive these things is simply this, not my will be done, but yours, O Lord. Oh, learn it now, young man, young woman. And you will spare yourself a potential life of heartache. Learn it now. 
Take it to heart now and make it your daily prayer now. Self-denial means we renounce all that we have. Oh, Lord, what do you want me to do? You know, it's not simply, you know, we hear that question. What do you want me to do? And we think again, self-denial, and we go this way so quickly. You know, we start to think of the Hermans in Chad. Well, they're self-denial, right? We support the Hermans. We hear from them. I can't remember which care group is corresponding with them right now. Oh, they've left the United States. They've left the comforts of this country. They've left family. They've left ease, prosperity, all these things. And they're off in the middle of Africa. Chad, I'm not sure exactly where it is on the map, but I know it's over there. And they're following these nomads all around through the desert. And they're contracting eye effect infections and ear infections. And they're exposing their children, their own flesh and blood to that. Well, that's self-denial. And to a certain degree it is, but bring it back home, my friend. As a matter of fact, bring it back right into the home. Self-denial in the context of marriage. What does it mean to renounce all that we have? Self-denial in the context of rearing and raising our children. What does it mean to surrender our will to God's will? Self-denial when it comes to the study of God's word. If you're really going to do it right, you're really going to be a faithful student of the word. What is that going to mean? What is that going to look like? What kind of sacrificial service will be involved? This church, what does self-denial look like? Yes, the Hermans and Chad, that's wonderful. The Lord bless them and we're praying for them. Oh, but the applications to the here and now and our lives in the 24-7, what it means to joyfully surrender our will to God's. Here's the third step. Go with me to Luke chapter 9. We're going to be here for a while. Number three, self-denial means we take up our cross. Let me read the entire text for you and then we will pick it apart. And we're going to draw out five or six points from it. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me. All right, so you say you believe in me. That's wonderful. And you're enjoying and reveling in all the gifts and blessings and benefits of the gospel in union with me. And now you're setting out on this journey. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the Holy Angel. Okay, the third step in self-denial from verse 23, it means we take up our cross daily, daily. Remember, when the Lord Jesus spoke those words, the disciples hearing them, they were on which side of the cross? The other side. They aren't thinking of Christ's crucifixion. When he utters these words, what are they thinking of? 
They've seen it. They've seen the criminals dragging their crosses to the place of execution. They've seen the roadways and the highways lined with crosses, people, rebels, crucified. They've seen it. They were acquainted with it. They've probably seen a hundred corpses, the dead and the dying, maybe thousands of them, grotesque in their understanding, completely repugnant in their sight. And now the Lord Jesus makes it clear. You want to come after me, you deny yourself. And here is what it will mean. You will take up your cross daily. Meaning what? You will die. And you will die daily. You will die to you. You will die to what you want to do. You will die to who you want to be. You will die to your ambitions, your desires, your dreams. You will die to your love of self. And the only question that will matter in your sight is this. What do I, your Lord and Master, require and demand of you? You will take it up, your cross, and die daily. Oh, we must esteem the Lord Jesus so highly that we are willing to lose everything to obtain him. It is an unbelievably difficult message to swallow, not only because it is so repugnant to the natural man, but because it is completely antithetical to everything the world tells us. Because the world tells us, if you want to be happy, just do it. The world tells us that the road to happiness, blessedness, contentment and satisfaction is what it is personal gratification and the lord jesus is declaring the exact opposite no the path to eternal joy is personal renunciation and it is to take up our cross and die daily hear these words write them down reflect on them later We only begin to live when we die. Oh, that we would learn that. We only truly begin to live when we die. That is, die to self and die to self daily. That is life. Here's the fourth step. Self-denial means we follow Jesus. Look at verse 23 again. He said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. What does it mean to follow him? I think it simply means we look to the Lord Jesus and we understand that his great impetus, his great motivation for being, for coming, for living was what? I desire to do your will, O God. He came not to do his own will, but the will of his father who sent him. And so we follow Jesus. We follow his example. We understand that we die die to our own will, our own desires, and we follow, we emulate the life he lived in submitting himself to his father's will and not doing what he wanted to do, but exactly what the father wanted him to do. It is illustrated for us so pointedly and perfectly in the hour of his temptation. You go back with him into the wilderness. 
And there the devil comes with him with those three temptations. What was the purpose of those temptations? The purpose of those temptations was to get the Lord Jesus to act in a fashion contrary to his father's will. The temptations themselves were actually morally neutral. Nothing wrong with turning stones into bread. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with jumping off the pinnacle of the temple. Nothing wrong with that. There was nothing wrong with these temptations in and of themselves. What was wrong was this. And how the devil was testing him was this. Will you do what you want to do? Or will you do what your father wants to do? We are to follow him in obedience. Oh, it is so contrary to our bent. So contrary to our inclination, I want my own way is the heartbeat, the impulse of far too many of us. I want my own way. I want to be uppermost, esteemed, appreciated, respected, or perhaps most common of all, Perhaps even most frightening of all, I refuse to let go of my sin. No self-denial. I refuse to let go of my sin. Back in May, I was teaching a course up in Toronto, Toronto Baptist Seminary. And it was one afternoon, we were starting to drag a little, as it tends to do in those courses, packed into a week, and kind of opened it up for just general questions. And um, one young man, man asked, okay, I hope to get into the pastorate sometime and, and serve the Lord in that capacity. What are the greatest challenges you've found being a pastor? Greatest challenges. Actually, it wasn't the word, you didn't use the word challenge. You used the word frustrations. What are the greatest frustrations you've experienced as a, as a pastor? I rhymed off three or four. And among them, I say to you publicly right now that perhaps the greatest frustration or the greatest challenge, perhaps the most frightening thing, I might even say, And the most disheartening thing, the most frustrating thing is to sit with someone and say, this is what the Bible says and have them then walk out the door. I don't care. I don't care. A person who actually claims to be a Christian, a person who claims to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. A person who claims, dare I say, has the audacity to claim to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ when confronted in black and white with the clear, uncompromised, unequivocal will of God says, no, I am doing what I want to do. That is perhaps the most startling, most frustrating, most grief-inducing, most challenging moments as a pastor, as an elder, as a friend. Because at that moment, you realize what? I'm no longer talking to a believer. I'm not talking to a believer. Because you see, how are we saved? We are saved by believing in the Lord Jesus. That's it. It is simple. Lord Jesus died upon Calvary's cross. He died for sinners. And God commands us to look to the Lord Jesus away from ourselves and believe in him. We all say that. Amen. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. 
Amen. Alone, alone, alone. Faith alone. We believe that's all we do. We become one with him. Amen. And the moment we become one with him, what happens? We're, we set out on a journey. We have just entered a narrow gate, which does not lead to a broad way. If you're on the broad way, you have not entered the narrow gate. It is a narrow gate that leads to a very, very narrow way. And is a way marked by repentance and self-denial. And the individual says, I don't care. I don't care. That's what it says. You're just a legalist. I'm, I'm doing what, what, what I want to do. Is demonstrating what? They have never entered through the narrow gate. Meaning what? They never really have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. To believe in Christ is to become one with him. And to become one with him is to come alive. And to come alive, despite our ongoing struggle with sin and temptation and everything else, is to set a course for home. And that course is marked by repent in every case, without exception. That way is marked by repentance and self-denial. Another word for self-denial is simply what? I hope you've picked up on it by now. Simply obedience. It's simply saying, yes, Lord, I get it. That's what you want. It's not what I want. But what I want doesn't matter. Because I have taken up my cross and I am dying daily. And I am now following you. Number five, let's move on. Self-denial is how we save our life. Verse 24, quickly, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. In other words, a self-seeking, self-centered, self-pleasing life ends in eternal misery. Why? Because it demonstrates that that individual is on that broad way that leads to destruction. In marked contrast, a life characterized by repentance, not perfection. There's a huge difference characterized by repentance and self-denial. That is the losing of our life demonstrates that we have entered through the narrow gate. We're on the narrow way and it leads where to life, life eternal. Here's number five, self-denial. Number six, right? Number six, self-denial is the most sensible decision we can ever make. The most sensible decision we can ever make. Again, verse 25. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? Everything I want. Me, myself, and I. And I'm able to get it all. Do whatever I want. Be whoever I want. Enjoy whatever I want. Live for me. What does it profit a man if he lives like that? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? And loses Or forfeits himself. Or as in some translations, his own soul. What does it profit that man to live for himself, enjoy it all, but in the end be lost for eternity? Strange some of the experiences we have, isn't it? I had a strange one last week when we we were back up in Canada at the cemetery. And we spent maybe 20, 25 minutes as a family walking around the cemetery. I actually highly recommend it. 
It might be the most profitable 20 minutes you spend this year just walking around a cemetery and reading the names, reading the epitaphs, reading the pithy little statements, the little verses, everything else, the dates, the ages, places of birth and where they died, all these things. What a powerful reminder. What a, what a tremendous awakening to the reality. We are here today. And my friend, bank on it, we're gone tomorrow. We are gone tomorrow. Self-denial is the most sensible decision we can make. A view of eternity, the big picture, promotes self-denial. How? Quickly, let me just give you a few suggestions. Number one, it makes Christ precious, right? A clear view of eternity makes the Lord Jesus so precious because we understand he delivers us from the wrath to come. It promotes change, makes a proud man humble, a vain man serious, covetous man generous, curbs temptation. Because it demonstrates that this world's pleasures, riches, and honors are transitory. Fourthly, it produces diligence. It shows us what is truly important. A view of eternity promotes self-denial. Self-denial is the most sensible decision we can make. I'm going to add something here. This is something I've been burdened about for a while. I'll add it here and leave it with you for your consideration. Friends, <laughs> this is morbid, I know. When it, when it, we're all going to expire if the Lord does not return. And it's going to happen. Can, can, I, can I encourage you? Can I plead with you? That in preparation for that day, you plan for a funeral and not a celebration of life. Please, plan a funeral with lamenting and in the midst of the lamenting rejoicing like those who really do have a hope as opposed to what our society has now made it and the church seems to be imbibing front left and center this celebration of life a person has died a consequence of the fall we have now entered into the realm of eternity. Let's make much of that. Understand the weightiness of it, the significance of it, and the call upon us, the implications for us, that we are to live in light of that reality rather than trivializing the whole thing and trying to make some sense of it and put a smile on people's faces to make them feel better in the light of something they would rather not consider, take seriously, that they dare not consider nor take seriously because they do not want to go where that will send them. It's called a funeral and it's called grieving over it. Is called lamenting over the consequences of sin having entered this world and ravaged mankind. And there it is before us, the body, the soul gone. Oh, what a powerful reminder, powerful reminder that we are but like grass. We are here today, we are gone tomorrow. And if we have an ounce of sense, 
We'll live like it. We will live like it. Oh, a life of self-denial is the most sensible decision we can make. Number seven, self-denial is threatened by a love of possessions. Takes us into verse 25 still. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? So much to grab and hold on to and loses or forfeits himself. You want to see it in even clearer terms, keep a finger there in the ninth chapter. Go with me to chapter 18. Most of us will be familiar with this text, this encounter, the rich young ruler, right? Luke 18, verse 18, this young man, this ruler comes to the Lord Jesus. He asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things. He became very sad, for he was extremely rich, extremely rich. His first loyalty was something else. Who doesn't want eternal life? Who doesn't want to go to heaven and see grandma and everyone else who's already passed away? It's not the issue. Who esteems Christ to such a degree that they consider anything and everything this world has to offer to be but dung by way of comparison. This rich young ruler was not there. Back to Luke 9, the Lord, Je- Luke 9, the Lord Jesus is warning us of this very thing. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Self-denial is threatened by a love of possessions. I read things at times and some things stick with me. Some things are gone. You pick things up and I can't remember why or where, but I've got this thing in my mind of, I don't know if it's, a, if it's apocryphal or if it's true, but it was a Southeast Asia, how to catch a monkey. Five simple steps of how to catch a monkey. I don't know what magazine I was reading or if I dreamt this or what. Five easy steps to catching a monkey. So what do you do? You get like a vase or a jar with a rather narrow opening and you stick it to the ground or chain it to the ground so it can't move. Step one. Then you get a bunch of treats, uh, maybe pieces of apple or orange, something that monkeys like, bananas, right? And you put them around that vase, that jar. And step three, you then hide and wait. And the monkey comes out, finds those treats. You've also put some inside the jar. And the monkey will grab one, start eating it, start grabbing others and collecting them. It will hone in on that jar, realize there are more in there, put its hand in, grab as many as it can. But what's happened? He could get his hand in, but now he's got all these treats in his hand and he can't what? Get it out. Step five, you've got your monkey. Because now you just walk over and you pick the thing up. Even when struck with fear, it will not let go of those treats. 
Do you see where I'm going with this? The number of monkeys, human beings, with their hands full of treats, heaving and pulling on this jar, trapped, shrieking like mad because of what is transpiring around them, not understanding it is their grasp on the treats that are the problem. And they will not let go of those treats for a million years. What is the Lord Jesus saying? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? How many people with their hands in that jar, stuck, taken captive, and living with the consequences of it? Why? All because they will not deny self. Here's number eight. Self-denial is threatened by a fear of shame. Verse 26, whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Oh, just a few words. I could say so much more. Just a few words because it is so strikingly relevant for us and for the church in the age that is coming as we in this country are increasingly marginalized and pushed to the extremity of this society, and no longer welcomed in the public sphere, the test will be what? It will be to compromise, to remain relevant, to remain accepted, to remain esteemed. Why? Because even some believers, for some crazy reason, still value the world too much still value what people say and think far too much, still value the status and the notoriety that the world has to offer too much. Self-denial is threatened by a fear of shame. Quickly, you'll have to think that one through on your own. Here's number nine to finish off. Self-denial is exemplified in Jesus. Over to Luke 22. And this certainly prepares us for our participation of the Lord's Supper this morning. Luke 22. Self-denial is exemplified in Jesus. Verse 39. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That's it. The spirit, the essence of self-denial. And so visibly, wonderfully portrayed here in the Lord's Supper. He who came not to do his own will, but the will of him who sent him and came offering himself consciously, freely, gladly, joyfully as the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. Our heavenly father, come now, we pray. Bless these words to our hearts and give us understanding in all things. Break the hard and stony heart, we pray, to receive Comfort the troubled and discouraged heart to also apply. And in all things, we pray that your kingdom would come in and through us for your glory. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we ask it. Amen.